0: Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 87. The Classico Weekend concludes. Yeah, so on Sunday we had a couple of uh, cagey affairs and a couple of maulings as well. Always fun, these really, really big games. They produce interesting storylines, narratives, tons of questions, and bragging rights are shared and spread across. Uh, It's a time where these big games are times where any cracks that are hiding behind underneath the surface for teams, the paper gets peeled straight off of those. Any team that is prepped and ready to go and make a statement and a splash and really win in a way that keeps the pressure on their rivals and, of course, the manager, that comes up too. So we got to see a lot of good things this weekend. Sometimes you get games that aren't super exciting. We had a couple, but overall, plenty to take away from the five fixtures that were basically derbies or Title clashes, really. So, the one that's a real title clash, uh, it's it's in Holland. So, we'll start there with Ajax against PSV. Ajax put on a show for their home crowd at the Johan Cruyff Arena, winning 5-0 against their, really, their main title rivals. A hell of a statement. And the class of which they did it was great. I mean, they were off to a flying start. They scored really early through Berghaus. Uh, he had a beautiful, class, left-footed, curling finish that, went sort of central in the roof of the net, and you sort of wonder, well, goalkeeper, It's kind of... Set. But he also used the defender as a screen with his shot, and it was just fantastic. So, 1-0 at halftime, but it was in the second half where everything went off. Uh, they scored in the 56th minute, the 66th minute, the 76th minute, and then rounded it off with a goal in stoppage time. Uh, look, What impressed me the most about Ajax was the way they pressed in the midfield. They... We're not too concerned with doing a high press right at the top of uh, the box for PSV the whole game. It, they did a few times, but mostly, especially success, came from winning the ball in the midfield, waiting for PSV to try and come inside, and then hounding them out with two or three players, winning it, and sending people off on the counterattack. It, it, it worked very, very well. Um, props to Eric Ten Hag, the coach for Ajax, Um He was in charge of them when they went on that crazy run a few years ago and when they were knocked out by Spurs in literally the last few seconds of that semifinal. And the way they're playing is fantastic. It's so similar to them. And there's a lot of players from that team that are no longer around. I mean, you can obviously mention the big, big names of Frankie DeYoung, Matthias DeLict. Hakim Ziyech, of course. But then there are others that aren't there anymore. You know, Talia Fika was a big part of it. Um, they, Donny van De Beek, of course. There's so many that are 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 not in the squad anymore that to basically just rebuild this entire system and have it functioning again in such a similar way is really impressive. So props to Eric Den Haag. Haller scored again. Uh, the guy, guy celebrates like... Uh, with the most amount of chill I think I've ever seen. It's pretty incredible. Uh, So he continues to impress, as does Antony, young Brazilian guy, scores another goal. Look, Berghaus is a real talent. But then you've got Tadic and Klaassen, who they score really good goals and important ones as well. And the amount of class and wealth and, and experience that they bring to the table is something that, is crucial for this Ajax team, especially in big games and as they advance in the Champions League, which I'm starting to think they will have no problems doing. The way they rip Dortmund apart, they're going to put themselves, hopefully, into the next round. I would like to see them there. Instead of a team like Dortmund, who are basically over-reliant on one player, I would love to see this Ajax team go and, and do more. And the way they're playing right now, it doesn't look as if PSV are going to have much of a prayer of catching them in Holland in the Dutch Eredivisie. So... That was a pretty solid marker laid down by Ajax. Definitely something worth taking note of for everyone else. Like, no, they're they're for real. And even though they've rebuilt, this coach has got it going on. So, congrats to Ajax. PSV, sorry it went that way. But, hey, sometimes it happens in these big games. Over to Italy, where we had the Derby d'Italia. And, you know, it ended in a pretty calcio type of way, didn't it? Um, 1-1 draw between two Giants. Look, Inter scored in the first half, and I think they were much, much better in the first half. Hakan Chananogulu hit a screamer. They hit the apex, uh, top of the post, and came down, and Edin Dzeko was just quick enough to react, get the rebound in, did it very well. But And, and Dzeko, I, I have to admit, he has filled Romelu Lukaku's shoes quite expertly. I mean, recently there was a, a quote from someone at Inter Milan saying, Yeah, I mean, we sold Lukaku, we brought in Dzeko for free, and basically there's not really a difference on the pitch. Okay, that's not entirely true. It's a very different system. You don't have Conte anymore, so they're playing a different style. Would this Inter Milan team last season have given up this lead? Well, who knows? But it's great to see Barella just continue to to improve. I mean, the guy looks like a young Marco Verratti to me. Um, very similar. They've got a huge personality, big temperament, but they're, they, they're all over the pitch. So, Barella's been great. And, overall, I I think Inter Milan are definitely continuing to go in the right direction. They're trending well. And, so are Juventus, though, unfortunately, for, for I think, the rest of the Serie A. Most people would like to see Juve have a real down year this year, similar to last year, but one where, you don't even worry for a second that they're going to, uh, you know, really challenge for a title. I, after a team wins nine in a row, you kind of—it's nice to see them going a little bit of a barren run. That's the way I feel. Not that I have anything against Juve, but when they brought on Dybala and Chiesa, it really did show what this team is capable of doing. Had those two started, and I don't know what the reason is for them not having started, but had they started, I, I have a feeling Juve would have been a lot more progressive in the first half. Look, does the game end one-one? I if if the Decisions are made differently. Obviously, we'll never know, and it's not worth getting into. But I don't understand how Chiesa is not—you don't use him even earlier, right? Bring him on at halftime or something. Because for the last year and a half, aside from Ronaldo, of course, Chiesa has been Juve's best attacking talent. He's been their best attacking player. He's been the most productive. And he's a breath of fresh air. Everything surrounding Dybala is difficult because he was sort of like— Really, a star for a minute there. And then when they brought in Ronaldo, that changed. And it's been difficult for him to really, really get his feet, you know, wet in the last two years, DiBala. So he scores the penalty late on, a soft penalty, in my opinion. Again, these things happen sometimes in these big games. But DiBala gets his, himself going for the season. So, you know, maybe this is a start of good things for Juve, but watching them play, I don't really know if Max Allegri really has this group figured out to be able to not grind out results because that's not what you want to see from a team that's trying to win titles. They have to beat thoroughly beat some teams along the way as well. And we haven't seen a whole lot of that yet. Conversely, I think Simone Inzaghi has done a really good job at Inter Milan so far. They are they're interesting. I I I think they let off the gas way too much in the second half it, to go and and to beat Juve you got to get yourself a 2-0 lead. Or you've got to really control the game. And when they started to lose control of the game after DiBala and Chiesa came on, you sort of felt like the draw was possible. And then it just kind of limply happened. So Inter will be gutted for losing that lead and, and not collecting all three points. And I'm sure Juve are going to see this as just one more stepping stone towards coming back and potentially making a run at the title this season. Who knows? All right. Moving on to France, Le Classique between Marseille and PSG. Yep, uh, at the Stade Vélodrome on the south coast of France. Look, this was a fun game to watch. And though it ended nil-nil, it was genuinely exciting. I mean, th- there was plenty of stuff that happened. In the first half, two disallowed goals, both rightly called off for offside. But, I mean, first it was PSG, but then when Marseille scored theirs, and I really thought this was onside, I... I I kind of got wrapped up into thinking that this would definitely count. And I'm sure all the fans in the stadium did because there were flares going off everywhere. I mean, this the atmosphere in that stadium for this fixture is incredible. And I'll get to that in a minute after I wrap up sort of what happened with the football. Also, with the two disallowed goals, Hakimi gets red card in the second half. So that added a little bit more to everything that was going on. The weird thing is that you would think that when Marseille would go up a man with about 20 minutes to go, that this would be an opportunity to really try and heap the pressure on PSG. And they didn't really do that. It seemed as if they were more content with going, well, look, now there's less of a likelihood that they really come at us. They're probably going to sit back a little bit more. And so now we can just pick and choose moments, try to maybe work off a set piece, something, a piece of magic. Maybe Payet scores a free kick. Well, no, his were off that day. They were n- really not good. So in the end, it, it just ends in a draw. And I think it's a missed opportunity for Marseille. But at the same time, to not lose to PSG in this current iteration of what PSG is, it does mean something. But Marseille also, it's it's been years since they've won against PSG at home. So th- this is big for them. Um, I do think the Hakimi red card was the, fair, the, the right decision. Unfortunately for him, he he pushes off with his arm. He does not need to do that. And uh, Chinky Zunder was just beyond him. He was he was going to be able to get a shot off if he didn't do that. So perhaps the right decision from Hakimi as well because this was outside the box, so it didn't give a penalty. Payet didn't score the free kick, and the game ends nil-nil. Now, the crowd in this stadium, like I said, were fantastic in the sense that... You could sense the game. I mean, that there was such a palpable tension, even just watching it on a laptop, right? Uh, you know, flares were going off, and, you know, it was loud. But although some water bottles were thrown on the field um, when there were corners being taken, the good thing is that it didn't blow over. It wasn't way over the top at all. This is kind of stuff that you see in any major rivalry in a lot of places around Europe. What was funny was all these stewards, these people who are like holding these movable nets around. So they would, it'd be like three or four different guys, three or four guys holding this big, tall pole that had a net attached across it. And they would stand and post those things up by the corner flags when a corner was being taken. Probably a pretty good deterrent. There were some water bottles thrown on the field, as I said, and the Marseille players did a really, really good job of going and trying to, just communicate with the fans. Stop doing this because of everything that's been going on in France since the start of the season. There's been so much crowd trouble. Uh, I mentioned the last episode previewing this game that there have been, I think, <clears throat> seven or eight incidents in the nine game weeks that we've had in the French League season that involved you know, fans running onto the pitch or you know, really, really bad issues. Now, there was one pitch invader. Got to give this guy props because he was able to actually get himself onto the screen. Normally... When there's a pitch invader, right, the cameras go elsewhere. But this guy got right up in the play. It was very bizarre to see for a second, actually. I I was pretty confused because he was wearing white. So when he's running, you're thinking, okay, same, you know, you're thinking he's a Marseille player at first. And he is just hauling up the field, chasing Leo Messi. And everyone kind of slows down. And then you hear the whistle blow. And then he kind of goes up to Messi and, I don't know, try to get a selfie with him or something. But that guy was rapid, so I got to give him props. And for actually, you know, if you're going to run on the pitch and try and be seen, of course he was chasing Messi. But give him props; he he chased Lionel Messi and pretty much caught up to him. So, <laughs> look, it, it matters a lot for Marseille fans to not lose this game. I, I, they would have been far more happy to win it. And then the questions continue for PSG. I mean, Neymar was anonymous, and it's interesting because. I don't think I've seen him play well once this season. Uh, he talked about how, he talked recently about how he's getting sick, sort of sick and tired of playing for Brazil. And he may retire, you know, from at least the Brazilian team and maybe even football in general after the World Cup next year. Really, really interesting to see him struggle as much as he is. Especially when Neymar or when Messi comes in, you were expecting this, you know, like I said, the m M&M and Messi, Neymar, Mbappé, and Di Maria, you were expecting that to really take off, and it just hasn't done it. So, Messi still uh, has not scored in Liga. Well, interesting statistic that one is. All right, on to Spain. El Clásico. And a strange one, to be honest, and no offense to any fans who reside somewhere in the world where a game at 8 p.m. in Spain is just at a horrible hour for you to watch. Look, that's just the way the world is. Um, (laughs) During the 2002 World Cup in Japan and Korea, I remember pretty much being up from one until seven every single morning and then having to sleep a little bit and still live my life and do things and, uh, you know, this is the way it is, right? I will say the reason I bring this up is because it's bizarre to see a Classico played in the daytime. now. When you watch the English League, you'll see all kinds of you know big games during the day, right? The FA Cup Final is always during the day. <clears throat> I mean, mo- uh, there's always 12.30 kickoffs and afternoon kickoffs. And some games are played at night, of course. But it's incredibly rare for the Classico to be played during the daytime. I don't think I've ever actually seen that, which um, is, is interesting. Maybe it happened during COVID. I'm not sure. But, but this game tends to be a night game so the atmosphere just felt different. I guess I don't know if it felt that way for the people in the stands for the players. Night games tend to make a difference. So it was weird to me. But overall as a game, it's also weird because neither of these teams are at that peak strength that we you know associate with them. Barcelona are obviously in the dumps right now. And Real Madrid have kind of kind of been a step by step move forward machine over the last few years, especially since Ronaldo left. They've just kind of inched their way towards whatever titles they've won. And, you know, they've been able to control this fixture pretty well. Sergio Dest, you have to score that opportunity. You score that opportunity and you force Real to come out of their shell a little bit to play, to try and find some extra foothold in the game. But 10 minutes after that miss, David Alaba scores a fantastic, fantastic shot with his left foot, beating Ter Stegen. And after that, this is it. Real Madrid, they know what to do in these scenarios, especially from the Zidane days. Now with Carlo Ancelotti, who's a very good pragmatic manager, they were able to just kind of see the game out over the course of it. They were in control of everything except the lion's share of possession, which they didn't seem to care. And I think it was interesting how easy of a victory it sort of looked like being for Real Madrid. Lucas Vazquez scoring also from a fast break late on. And then just when you think it's going to be 2-0, Kun pops up and scores as a substitute, which I think does give a greater sense of hope and optimism down the line for him and for Barcelona that they have someone who can score goals in the box. It it doesn't have to be Depay because I think Depay is much, much better at creating. So... Things are still slowly falling into peace for Barcelona and Soufati back. But Real Madrid, you know, they basically went out and did what they had to do. Not any more than what's needed to beat Barcelona. And at the moment, to beat Barcelona, all you really need to do is be solid defensively throughout the game and be able to counterattack quickly. That is so, so, so key. The unfortunate scenes really are at the end when you know Barcelona fans in the, in the park, car park after the game outside the stadium, they really confronted Ronald Koeman. And look, I know that he's not the ideal manager for this club. He's definitely not the best they can do by any stretch. But he is what they've got at the moment. And he's not doing a disastrous job either, in my opinion. There's young players coming through, which is very good that he's bringing some of those in. And yes, he does things a bit that perplex everybody. But at the same time, there is something slowly building here at Barcelona. There's some good young players. As a collective, he's got to figure out a way to make them better. But he does have the talent at his disposal to keep them afloat, at least for this season, right? Carlo Ancelotti, on the other hand, well, I mean, he he he's very real at the moment about the way he sees his Real Madrid career. I think he does not want to go out the same way he did last time. And he doesn't... I think he really, really wants to create a solid foundation for which this season they can potentially win the league with a good side, but not a very deep side, and one that's not really studded in the back line. I mean, the fact that they're doing well defensively is impressive considering they don't have Varane and they don't have Sergio Ramos. So, you know, they're starting fresh and, 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 and they're doing much better. And so you imagine if Real Madrid can build a strong, solid defensive basis... Maybe add a, na- a name or two in the midfield to help with the aging legs of Cruz and Casemiro and Modric, and then add potentially Pogba, Mbappe, Erling Holland next summer. Hmm. Yeah, they're going in the right direction, Real Madrid. So, yeah, a Classico that feels a little bit flat turns out to actually be all right. All right, Manchester United, Liverpool. I. I Look, the fallout from this one is going to be bigger than the fallout from any of the rest of these. Uh, that, that That's the way I see it. It was damning on so many levels for Manchester United. And the weirdest part about this, it did not feel like it was that unpredictable at all. Um, at, Paul Scholes said so much after United's comeback against uh, Atalanta in the Champions League. He basically said if you play like that against Liverpool, you'll get ripped apart, which is exactly what happened. Especially from the second to first goal went in. And the reason why is that first goal, the, the passes and build-out are too easy. Everything is just connected to the obvious next player. There's no time where a Liverpool player had to really change their decisions, slow what they were doing, come up with something creative. That, that like, didn't exist. Salah was great all-match. But when you look at that first goal, his assist, it's like, it's almost embarrassing in the sense that he's like, I could dribble and cut up the defender. Maybe it was Lindelof or McGuire. I don't know. And, and, and score. Or I could maybe just slot in Nabi Keita. Well, he slots in Nabi Keita for what was, I think, the easiest goal of the day. And then after that, it was just, it was shambolic for Man United in every single way. Um, I don't even think Salah was that great in compare comparison to how he played against Watford last week or City previously. I think today it was just too easy. Uh, that that's that's just the way it felt, right? That's a, it's a, the whole time I was like, I don't I don't see how like it's, I'm not seeing the brilliance from Salah. I'm just seeing a, a really good player, basically just with a simple set of tasks to accomplish all day long. Uh, he did get hooked up by Jordan Henderson for the, for his third goal, a very nice finish, but the pass, my goodness, excellent. And then you ask yourself, what is going on at United? I mean, what are they, what, what is the way that they defend? If you allow a team to basically pass through your entire unit and no one can get a glove on anyone, and that's what's happening throughout the entire first half, your pressing is wrong. Your, your decisions of when to go, how to stay compact. It's wrong. It's wrong. And if these things aren't being worked on in a training pitch at the highest level, believe me, it's not going to cut it. I don't really know what Solskjaer's idea is about how to really make the midfield solid uh, to go with Mac Fred instead of Paul Pogba in a game like this, especially after Paul Pogba helped you out big time in the midweek. I, I I don't really know. I just don't really know what Solskjaer is doing. Uh, And it could have been so much worse. Because, look, when you get passed around like that and it ends in goals and quick ones, it is frustrating and embarrassing. So what happens? Well, we got to see a little bit of how Man United just started to lose complete composure and discipline. And it could have easily had three red cards in this game. Pogba's was the one that actually was the first, was was the only one to actually get a red card. But Bruno Fernandez's challenge in the first half was orange, at least. And then, okay, Cristiano Ronaldo. Tell me that when he kicks Curtis Jones, that's not violent conduct. Okay, is that pure violence? You know, is he kicking him in the face? Is he punching him in the face? No. But if you can get a red card for spitting on somebody, which, by the way, I totally agree with, and I think that's repulsive and you shouldn't be allowed to do it, of course. But... How on earth are you allowed to just kick a ball twice, by the way? He takes one jab, and then he goes and really winds up and hits the ball right into Curtis Jones's, I don't know, I think it looked like his lower stomach. But we're not talking far away from a slightly more painful situation. And the reason why is because the first foul that sent Curtis Jones to the floor is already a yellow card because it's a frustrated, you know, foot hooks his leg around him, drops him to the ground, takes a little stab. That's a yellow for him to take the second one where he smashes the ball into him, I'm sorry. Like, to me, that's a red card. A lot of people saying, well, if it weren't Ronaldo, 100% would be a red card. I don't really want to get into those kinds of conspiracies and theories about, you know, who gets red cards and who doesn't. But goodness me, I mean, Paul Pogba's was the most clear and obvious one. Um, and the only one that really, that that they sent to VAR. But the other two, I, I look, I think Man United dodged a bullet with how many players they ended up on the field with they also dodged a bullet that liverpool didn't decide to just ramp it up and go basically chelsea style we're building confidence everyone when i watched chelsea beat norwich 7-0 everyone on the pitch wanted to score didn't matter and maybe you got this feeling i don't know what it was maybe klopp sort of felt a little bit bad for ole or i don't know obviously some some of the quality memes that we've seen online are like klopp realized that if he puts seven past Ole, Ole's fired. And we need to keep Ole in the job at Man United so that they stay this mediocre. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't see how he can stay in the job all that much longer, especially if the players start to turn on him. Where's Jaden Sancho? Where's Donny Van De Beek? Nemanja Matic, he's a really good midfield general. He's a good player in the middle of the park. You have him on the bench and Pogba as well, and you start Fred and McTominay. Look, I don't know, but one thing I will say for uh Ole Gunnar Solskjar. And it's a little bit it's a story that was that I saw last year or the year before. So in the summer last year in, in uh, before the season started, everyone knew that Chelsea wanted to sign Declan Rice. Frank Lampard had him top of the list. That was that was the one of the biggest priorities. It was a goalkeeper to replace Kepa. They wanted a center forward, they got Timo Werner. And he really wanted a good midfielder. Now, he wanted Hakim Ziyech as well as a good winger, someone who had impressed against Chelsea. But Declan Rice was Frank Lampard's big target. For some reason, Chelsea decided, I mean, reports said that they did not want to sign an academy product that they had sent away, that they had turned down. All right. Uh, They ended up just signing Lukaku, who they bought Loaned out twice, sold, and then now bought him back at the, the, the massive amount more than they ever than they ever would have. Uh and instead, Chelsea signed Kai Havertz, not Declan Rice. And Kai Havertz was a thorn in Frank Lampard's side all of last season. It wasn't really until the Champions League final where he really had a good game. So I think about that, and I think about the fact that. Ole wanted a center midfielder. I'm not sure if he asked for Declan Rice in particular, but he wanted a center midfielder to shore up the midfield a little bit more. That doesn't happen. They get Jadon Sancho. I don't really know why, mostly because they were going after him last year. I think they just felt they needed to go ahead and make the deal go through. And then in the final hours, they signed Cristiano Ronaldo, and now it's a whole different setup. So I feel for Ole in the sense that he wanted a center midfielder, that he felt would really give his team the stability in the way he wanted to play. In the end, he doesn't get that. He gets one of the greatest players of all time, who's at the age of 37 now. It's it's a tough situation for Ole under Solskjaer. I don't also think he is an elite manager that can take this specific group of players to what they should be able to do, which is go the distance in the league, you know, final eight, final four of the Champions League without much of an issue— Maybe adding an FA Cup. Maybe your second string goes a long way in the League Cup. I mean, Man City have been winning that competition for a while, so United should consider that one relatively more important than nothing at the moment. I don't really know how this is going to pan out because a lot of people have said that Ole is liked enough by the Glazers and the players that everyone will just keep it the same way. But when you've got Ronaldo join that locker room, everyone all of a sudden wants to win just that extra little bit more. And if you've got a coach that's not going to deliver it for you, Eh, ain't gonna happen. Okay, well that's that's my recap of the five big games that happened this weekend. And to close it out, just want to shout out a few things that did happen this weekend because just three awards or sorry four awards for players and teams or whatever that just stand out moments. First of all, goal of the week. Everyone probably has seen this by now. It's Cyril Ngonge from Groningen. Uh, against AZ Alkmaar, scores it a ridiculous backheel. Check it out if you have not seen it yet. Uh, game of the week, Sevilla against Levante, 5-3, absolute cracker. And Torres' goal at the very beginning of that, volley off a corner, honorable mention for goal of the week as well. Play of the week, Giovanni Simeone, four goals. Versus Lazio for Hellas Verona. Four goals in one game. And look, Giovanni Simeone is 25 years old now. I think a lot of people got really hyped up when he came on the scene. Um, He's at Hellas Verona. Hopefully he has a really good season. And it would be nice to see him sort of reach some kind of level of big time. Whether that's an international appearance or playing for a big club. Something like that would be great. All right, save of the week. And maybe I'm a little bit biased, but Eduard Mendy. This was just too much fun. I don't really know if it's technically, it's definitely not technically the best save a goalkeeper made this weekend. But, Chilwell plays the ball back, and it's an awful pass. And, Norwich, Norwich attacker, I don't actually remember who it was, gets the ball, gets around Mendy, because Mendy has to come out a little bit. But, Mendy is able to make an unbelievable recovery, and Instead of trying to dive and catch it with his hands, he goes full-blown center back, block, tackle, is able to block the ball from going in the net, and an incredible piece of defending from him. He jumps up and he roars. And after that, Chelsea just kind of went off. Just went, went completely nuts and scored four more goals. And, uh, yeah, exciting weekend for me as a Chelsea fan. I enjoyed that. But more to come. Um, looking forward to the next episode. I am very excited to introduce a guest uh, in the next one, so stay tuned for that. Check it out. It will be fun. I'm not going to give it away at the moment. Thank you for stopping by. This is Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. Enjoy your week.